Yep, Ephesians 6, uh, 10 to 20. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your, take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Pray also for me that whenever I speak, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I might declare it fearlessly as I should. Uh, Let me pray. Um, Father God, we just really give you thanks for the past a few days that we've had in your word, uh, the sword of the Spirit. Uh, we pray that, 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 that by your word, uh, your Spirit would cut away our sin, uh, would, would pierce through the lies that, that we believe that are wrong uh, about you, about ourselves. And God, give us such a vision of Christ and what he's calling us to do. Uh, to make disciples, to fearlessly proclaim the gospel until every creature in heaven and on earth hear it. We pray that you would speak through Andrew now, uh, help him to be fearless, to be bold, courageous, full of love uh, for us and the people that we serve. Uh, We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Jeremy's uh, just given me a, a new thought. I haven't had this thought before, so thank you, Jeremy. Uh, there's Green Square. There's no Presbyterian church in Green Square. That's what's led you to think to plant there. Well, there's no FIC church in Green Square either, so I think we need someone to put up their hands and go and plant there as an FIC church. We haven't heard much about FIEC, so I'm going to keep talking about FIEC. Uh, and if you want to come and join us, you're very glad to as well. And team pastoring, looks like a great conference, I'm going to be there, so uh, make sure you come along back to work. Uh, let me uh, try and pull things together, I'm going to um, be looking at the uh, book of Ephesians and a few other places together with you again this morning. Um, this is the key passage, isn't it, the book of Ephesians chapter 6, we haven't mentioned it much before, uh, I've been leaving it to last to kind of pull everything together because it is the book that uh, does that for us. Um, Ephesians chapter 6, have a look there at verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armour of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. It is a very clear statement about the reality of the spiritual battle we're in. Uh, That our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. That is a very clear statement about the spiritual realities, and it's a fitting climax to the book of Ephesians. This book operates, if you've not read it, make sure you do, it's a book that operates with the cosmic level in mind. Uh, It's very aware of the cosmic realities and a cosmic fracture that's occurred, a rebellion, and it's aware of the larger, all-encompassing spiritual purposes of God to reconcile him. Come back to chapter 1 and you get this, uh, I think, a wonderful expression of the purposes of God One of the spiritual blessings he pours out on us in verse 3 there, one of the spiritual blessings is expressed to us in verse 9 and 10 in my view. One of the spiritual blessings is that he's made known to us the mystery of his will. According to his good pleasure which he purposed in Christ, what is the will that he has let us know about? 
It's the will to bring all things together under Christ. All things in heaven and on earth under Christ. It is a vision for a cosmic reconciliation that will occur across human, across spiritual, across heaven, across earth, across all of these things to establish the rule of Christ that has always been ruling, in a sense. God has always ruled, verse 13, um, uh, or somewhere else there that I've just lost again. Uh, the one who is working out all things. Gee, oh, goodness me. Come on, you guys work it out. Verse 11, verse 11. In him we were chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. This God has always ruled sovereignly, but the intention is for him to finally be seen to rule without contest. That's the great distinction I think I want to keep drawing for you, that the, the hope of the future isn't simply that God will rule, he does. It's rather that he, his rule, the rule of Christ, will be established without any contest is the hope that we have. But the battle that goes on centres on humanity as creatures who are ongoingly responsible. It, it is our glory, being in the image of God, that we are responsible creatures. Um, don't ever give up that glory. And don't let your people give up that glory by acting victims by imagining that spiritual forces are really overpowering me. No, 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 it is our glory to be responsible, to maintain our sense of responsibility. Fight for that. We are not victims. We become less as humans when we embrace victimhood. But our battle, it's not against flesh and blood. There is a war for your soul. There is a war for the souls of humanity. And it's a malevolent power that's against us. He is against you, he doesn't rest, and neither should you. Now, you won't get this sense of reality by your instincts. You won't, you won't appreciate the truth of this by just looking at the world, your own way of understanding things. You need the Word of God to bring the lens, the proper spectacles to make sense of our world so that we see what actually is there through the eyes of faith rather than the eyes of flesh. And it's particularly necessary to have the eyes of faith to see this because Ephesians chapter 6, come back there again, uh, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Now that is a very odd thing to say if you're the Apostle Paul, isn't it? If there was anyone who did struggle against flesh and blood, it was Paul. I mean, he was beaten and battered. Uh, he had Jewish opposition, he had Roman opposition, he had the creation, physical creation was against him in the storms. If there was anyone who had battles, it, physically, it was, was the Apostle Paul. But he says, my battle is not against flesh and blood, because the human, the physical face of the battle that I'm engaged in, is inconsequential. I think that's the key. It's inconsequential compared to the deeper spirit realities behind it. That's his point. That we do have battles against physical fleshly things, yes, but the spiritual realities behind it mean that battle is inconsequential in comparison. In the material opposition we face, there is another agency, Satan, and that agency is operating in the ordinary things of life the very tangible, physical, plain things of life, he is at work. So, brothers and sisters, as we close together, the great appeal I want to make to you is to be on your guard. Paul left the church at Ephesus, do you remember, in Acts chapter 20 with these words, Night and day I have never stopped warning you, because savage wolves will arise and they will not spare the flock. Be on your guard, he said to them. And so you must be on your guard. The enemy against us is powerful. The language of principalities and powers in the heavenly realms. These are massively significant. Do not underestimate 
Our enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, 1 Peter 5, seeking to devour. Don't underestimate his power against you. Realize that on your own, you are lost. Appreciate that. But we don't need to give in to fear because God has provided. If you put on the armour that he has given us, verse 13, therefore, knowing that our battle's not against flesh and blood, that's inconsequential compared to the great powers arrayed against us, knowing that truth, you need to put on the armour. But knowing that there is armour means that you don't need to give in to fear because God has provided. If you put on this armour, verse uh, 11, you'll be able to stand, put on the full armour of God so that you can take your stand. Verse 13, put on the armor, full armour of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. God's provided so that you can stand. It's what we need. Now look very quickly at the armour. Uh, I'm not going to go through it in great detail. I assume that many of you have done this before, but I want you to notice something about the armour. Let me go through them quickly. Um, have a look at uh, each particular piece. Verse 14, stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist. What is the belt of truth buckled around your waist? I take it it's an image of being immersed in the truth, to have the truth around you, to be immersed in it. Um, the shield of faith, what is the shield of faith? Um, uh, reflect it for us there. Uh, to, to have the shield of faith uh, is the movement of a human towards an object. Let me express it that way. A shield of faith is the movement of a human towards an object. And that object is the one you put your confidence in. That's what faith is, to put your confidence in an object. And that object is the Christ that we know through the Word of God. So the, my shield of faith is confidence in the Word of God through which I meet the risen Lord Jesus, the one who is Lord, the one who is Saviour. Uh, the helmet of salvation, let me just race through these further. Uh, the helmet of salvation, it's the faith in the truth that you are forgiven. Put on the helmet of salvation, the confidence that in Christ you are forgiven. Accusations cannot condemn you to death any longer. The breastplate of righteousness. Uh, what is that there, verse 14? Is it, the question with the breastplate of righteousness, of course, is it imputed righteousness or imparted righteousness? And where does Peter O'Brien land? Great writer of the commentary of Ephesians. It's both. So uh, I take it it's both two who wants to disagree with him. It's the righteousness, it's the righteous standing that is ours in Christ and it's the changed life that that righteous standing by the work of the Spirit brings into your life. Um, the, breast, the, the, the breastplate of righteousness. The sword of the Spirit is, of course, the Word of God. The feet shod with the Gospel, with that same Word. And then, of course, he says... Verse 18, to pray in the Spirit on all occasions. What is it to pray in the Spirit? I take it is to pray in the Spirit-inspired Word. To pray in the Spirit is to be praying by the shaping of the Spirit-inspired Word the way God would have you direct your prayers. Now, there's a quick run through, but notice what they all are. What are, what are the, what's the armour? Well, I think the armour is a powerful way of saying that what you've got to put on is the word of God, the life of faith, godliness and prayer. It's a powerful way of saying those simple things. And I'll tell you why it's a powerful way of saying those simple things because these pieces of armour are an allusion back into the book of Isaiah. And it's a, very, it's a powerful way of expressing simple things, but adding another point. If you go back to Isaiah chapter 59, you'll find that, uh, and elsewhere, if you go back to Isaiah 59 particularly, you'll find that the armour is the armour of God and his Messiah. Same things. Which means to put on the armour of God is to put on Christ. It's to stand in him. And all of the armour boils down to Truth of the gospel, our confidence in that with a life of righteousness and prayer. That's the armour. 
Now, that is particularly telling because these things, these pieces of armour that are spoken about here, are given to a church that has a very heightened awareness of the supernatural. Come with me down this path. The church at Ephesus is a church we know a lot about. How many other churches have we got so much written about? Uh, Acts 20, uh, we've got the letter 2, we've got 1 and 2 Timothy, we've got the letter to churches. We've got a lot about this one church. And we know about its conversion, we know about its leadership, we know about its history, we know about its future. We know a lot about the church at Ephesus. It was converted out of a context and culture of serious superstition. Do you remember the first thing they did when they were converted? We, uh, Toby took us through that the other day, didn't he? The first thing they did was actually burn their scrolls, which no doubt were full of magic spells, incantation, the kind of words you would say to bring about the power of the heavenly realms. They were caught up into magic. And the letters to Timothy, which I want to show again in a moment, the letters to Timothy include a number of references to, to the demonic. This is a church very aware of demonic forces. The people were under the sway of Satan. There were teachings taught by demons. Now, add that together. If there were ever a church where you would expect explicit teachings about exorcisms, this would be the church, wouldn't it? A modern spiritual warfare writer, if they had access to this church and were writing to them, their books would be full of instructions about how to mark out the land and the territory, how to cast out demons, how to name and claim and it would be full of this kind of material because they'd, be, they'd certainly be aware there'd be lingering possessions from their history in the occult. The witchcraft that they were part of would have its impact in people being possessed and so on. There'd be territorial spirits opposing these people. That would be the certain assumption. But Paul comes to this very church, elevates their awareness of the reality of the spiritual powers against them. Doesn't diminish it. It actually says, no, no, no. You really are in a context with evil, with evil forces. There really are spiritual powers against you. He actually hides them and their awareness. And yet, he, in fact, let me add too, he even adds the language of close personal contact and combat so that uh, we struggle, verse 12, our struggle. The word there is, is often referenced and re realised to be a word that's used in the um, combative sphere of the um, gladiator kind of context where you're in personal fighting with someone hand to hand it's not distance with an arrow it's tussling and so he, he heightens the demonic and says you're in close personal battle with the demonic and yet he says you've got all that you need to take your stand against these powers in putting on this armor the word of truth righteousness that you have in christ Godly living, confidence in these things, and prayer. He says, that's all you need to take your stand. You need nothing more than knowing the word of God, believing the word of God, living a life of righteousness that comes from all of that, and praying. Now, do you see how ordinary those pieces of armour are? To humanise, which is last night's point. You, you, you see that they are the armour of God and you are powerful to stand against the heavenly forces arrayed against you just with these pieces of armour. Which is a very tragic way of expressing it, isn't it? Saying, like, you're just a mum. Just these pieces of armour? No, these are precious, powerful pieces of armour if you've got spiritual eyes to see. Ephesians with Colossians, both these books operate very closely, are, according to O'Brien, identity-forming books. They're a way of learning your identity in Christ, how I stand in him. And for a people beset with fear over the demonic, this is a powerful tonic. 
Now, I did say just with these, but I said that deliberately because these things are sufficient. You don't need anything else because God is sovereign over the powers. Trust him. And in Jesus, the powers are defeated. Trust him. Despite all the history of magic, you remain responsible, Ephesian Christians. You aren't victims. You don't need some magic ritual. You need to trust what God has done for you in Christ, believe his word, rest on his word, seek to live godly lives, because you're not at the mercy of the demonic. You are a responsible creature who can be appealed to as a responsible human to act and respond appropriately, and by that and God's gifts of armour, stand. And the word, of course, is the great sword. Now, let me push this even further, which I want to do. Come with me to 1 Timothy chapter 4. Flip over there. I want to show you a couple of pieces out of 1 and 2 Timothy to keep driving this point home. Have a look at verse 1. The Spirit clearly says that in the latter times, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits, things taught by demons. Get this. Timothy's in Ephesus. Do you remember this? So he's in this same context, heightened spiritual awareness. And Paul says, you're going to be in a church setting where demonic influence is rife, where you will have people taught by demons. Now, how are you going to engage spiritually with that? Well, look what he says. Um, Let's see, just pick out a few things here. Verse 6, if you point these things out to the brothers and sisters, you'll be a good minister of Christ Jesus. Uh, Come down and see a little bit further. Uh, Verse 11, command and teach these things. Don't let anyone look down on you because you're young, but set an example for the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture to preaching, to teaching. Uh, don't neglect your gift, which was given through, through prophecy when the body of elders laid their hands on you. Be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Do you see what's absent? Do you see what's absent? There's not one mention of exorcism. It's all very... Ordinary stuff. Teach people, command, set an example, read the Bible publicly, watch your life, watch your doctrine, be diligent. These things are all very ordinary and boring and tiring and unspectacular. But that's what Paul says to a group of people who are beset with demonic problems. That's interesting. I find it interesting. Come look at 2 Timothy now. Come over to 2 Timothy chapter 2. Have a look in verse 25. Um, Oh no, verse 26, look there. what, they will come to their senses and escape the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. Writing again to Timothy about a group of people who have been taken captive to do the will of Satan. Now that's pretty close. Engagement with the demonic. Taken captive to do the will of Satan. How does Timothy engage with that problem? Well, Paul tells him, look at verse 20, uh, 25. Chapter 2, 2 Timothy two twenty-five. Um, Have a look at verse 25. Opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth, and that they will come to their senses and escape the trap of the devil who has taken them to do their will. Do you find that extraordinary? What do you do to rescue someone from the trap of the devil? You instruct them gently in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. God continues, Paul continues to relate to humans, though captured by Satan, as responsible people who can be appealed to by the word of God and called to repentance, to respond appropriately. 
There's no mention of exorcisms, which I take is highly significant. That none is mentioned in this context particularly. He's dealing with demons directly, but rather than talk about exorcisms, he, he encourages Timothy to use what one writer has called classic ministries. Let me, let me take you down this path. See, what occurs as you move through the New Testament is a shift. There's a very helpful book uh, read many years ago by Paulison on um, reclaiming spiritual warfare. It's not, I don't think it's in print anymore, but uh, it's a very helpful book. He speaks of this shift, and he talks about a shift from what he calls ecbalistic ministry to classic ministry. Let me explain this to you. Ecbalistic ministry, ek, it's ekbalo, it's the word for cast out dramatically, you see. And um, he talks about, uh, he reflects on the fact that the ministry of Jesus and the apostles engaged in ecbalistic casting exorcisms, where they'd command and speak and the demons would be cast out. Very dramatic. Um, but as the New Testament rolls on, there's a shift in ministry style as it engages with the demonic. There's a shift in ministry style that has the same impact on the demonic. The demons are defeated and cast out. It just occurs through different means. It occurs through the means of classic ministries of word, prayer, righteous living and calls to repentance. Now, that ought not surprise us that there is a shift. The New Testament expects that there's a shift that occurs. Uh, there were numbers of features of the ministry of Jesus and the apostles that were unique to them. And if you're not aware of that, then you need to grab hold of that, that it's signs and wonders and miracles are particularly associated with Jesus and the apostles. They were the ones who did the miracles, Acts chapter 4 and so on. Um, they were the ones who worked them with great person. There was a very, you see the shift happen. But let, further, let me give you an example of this, which Paulison points out, which I find really helpful, uh, paying taxes. Now, come with me to Matthew 17. Matthew 17, verse 24. After Jesus and his disciples arrived in Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma temple tax came to Peter and asked, doesn't your teacher pay the temple tax? Yes, he does, he replied. When Peter came into the house, Jesus was the first to speak. What do you think, Simon, he asked, from whom do the kings of the earth collect duties and taxes, from their own children or from others? From others, Peter answered, the children don't need to pay taxes. Well, who's Jesus? Uh, but anyway... The children are exempt, said Jesus, but so that we may not cause offence, go into the lake, throw out your line, take the first fish you catch, open its mouth, and you will find a four drachma coin. Take it and give it to them for my tax and yours. How does Jesus pay tax? Now, we've got a picture of my attempt to pay tax. <laughs> now, is that a fish or what? This, I've been trying to find a way to show the world <laughs> this fish I caught and this is the first chance I've had. And it's, it's, uh, that's just one of the fish I kind of catch regularly. It's, uh, <laughs> and it was me, we, we were down on budget and I was trying to work out how to pay taxes. Jesus did it, I went fishing. What do you think I found in its mouth? <laughs> yeah, nothing, nothing at all. One of those little creatures that lives on the tongue. It's uh, uh, nothing. Now here's the deal. Jesus pays, you can leave that photo up. <laughs> Jesus pays taxes, right, by going and catching a fish. Now, is there anywhere in the New Testament where it says you ought not do that? I don't know anywhere. Jesus did it. I want to be like Jesus. Why don't I be like Jesus and go and pay my tax? Well, because Romans 13 tells you you should pay taxes. But how does the New Testament, when you read the rest of the New Testament, you don't get a repetition of doing it like Jesus. What you get rather is a whole new way of doing it. What's the new way of paying taxes? Getting a job. Pete, getting a job. <laughs> Go and work. Get a job. You do, you work hard. But do you know, the way we pay taxes is a classic way. Do you see? Now, that same shift happens with demonic uh, there, there, isn't, there is an ongoing impact of the demonic amongst us. I don't think it's, I don't think it's necessary to believe there's, no, there's a change. I think it's possession still occurs. I can't imagine that stopped. Um, 
But here's the thing. Jesus does ecbalistic. Apostles do ecbalistic. We're nowhere ever taught to do it. It's just absent. But what is evident is in the context of demonic to do it another way. Do you see? Jesus paid taxes like this. Um, I don't doubt God's got the power to make me out of catch a fish and pay my taxes. Do you believe he couldn't do it? I believe he can. But does that mean I pursue it? No, because the New Testament gives me an expectation to do it in a shifted way. Same outcome, but just do it a different way. Cast out demons one way. As you come into the rest of the New Testament, you get this constant teaching right in the context where there's demonic to deal with them differently. To deal with them through the classic practices of word, prayer, righteous living, calling on people as responsible. And in those ministries, demons are defeated. They do lose their power and are cast out. You just don't see it as spectacularly. But does that make it less true? You know, the, the fact is there are ongoing attacks by Satan, even on us, especially on us. Hence the armour. Hence the words of Paul. Uh, come back to Ephesians 6. See if I can pick up these words quickly for you. Uh, come back to um, Ephesians 6. Um, uh, This is the problem of not writing down all my references. I get, uh, uh, well, it's in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11. You'll find it there as well, where he talks about the schemes of Satan. Verse 16. Thanks, Dan. You've always done this for me, brother. Thank you. Um, in addition, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. That's not it. Verse 11. Uh, yes, thank you. Good. Uh, put, put, put on the full armour of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. It's interesting in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul is talking about the problem of not forgiving an offended per, a person who's sinned. And he says, you, you must forgive them quickly and you must bring them back into fellowship because we're not unaware of the devil's schemes. Now, it is interesting that the devil does have schemes. He schemes against you personally. That's why it's hand-to-hand combat, because he is personally dedicated to undoing you. Okay? It isn't random. He is trying to outwit us. Don't be unaware of his schemes. Now, here's two insights about the way the devil works and schemes against us. You've seen some of the ways we engage with it. I'm going to actually apply it very practically now. Let's, Let's dig into this with two insights given to me by others. One, the first one's given to me by my father-in-law, by Cathy's father, um, who's, a, who's a fine Christian uh, expositor, preacher, counsellor. And he said to me, um, he uses the language of Satan whispering to people. And uh, he talks about it in terms of an old illustration, which I take it was around in their day and age. He's an old, old man now. He, it, um, he talks about the old piano with, uh, you know, the grand piano with strings or the upright piano with strings. And I understand, I've never seen it happen, but if you, if, you sort of, if you sing with a purity of note, you can actually hit exactly the note of one of the strings and cause it to begin to vibrate in resonance with the frequency you're singing. So I see enough nodding. You can't get that to happen here, I don't think. But uh, you know, on a, on a piano with strings, you can pull it off. His, his understanding is, and I think it's a helpful way of, of making sense of something, Satan doesn't make me sing, uh, sin, but he sings to me a temptation that aligns itself with particular strings I have. Do you see? He, he sings to cause those ones that I particularly have to begin to resonate so that it's me actually sinning. But influ- Now, we don't know the mechanism. I, I think it's a helpful way of thinking, but we don't know all the details of how that exactly works. But it's trying to capture the sense that Satan doesn't make me sing, demons don't make me sing, but they do speak to me and influence me and whisper to me in some way that brings about my sin. And so, what are your strings? This is his observation. What are your strings? You all have different ones. Each of you has a particular set of strings that Satan knows about and will sing to. And understanding his schemes is very important. 
Let me give you a taste. And this is from another person, a very old book, Thomas Brooks. Uh, Someone pointed to me some time ago. Thomas Brooks, The Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. And it's worth having. It's worth reading. It's like most Puritan books. takes hours just to get through one idea, but very thorough. And I'm going to give you a taste of some of the things he draws painstakingly out about the way Satan sings to us. Let me give you this taste. How does, what, what does, how does Satan sing and whisper to? What strings? Here's, here's one of them. He presents the bait and hides the hook. He presents the bait and hides the hook. This is straight out of Thomas Brooks. In the garden, what does Satan say? He says, you shall surely not die. He presents the bait. Beautiful fruit to make you wise, like God. You shall surely not die. The bait without the hook. The tragedy, of course, is that death is real. God's word was right and brought great devastation on all of humanity. The hook was there. When they, when they, when they ate, their eyes were opened and there was all the rest. Satan shows us the bait, what it will do that feels good, and hides the hook. Let me give this to you, friends. That other woman, Satan will whisper to you the bait, how you need her, how she understands you, how she at least laughs at your jokes, how she's actually someone that will satisfy, but he will hide the hook. He'll hide the hook of the devastation to you and your life, to your marriage, to your kids, to your church, to the Christian reputation. It'll just go on and on. Women, the bait of that man who's not so busy, who can pay attention to you, who notices things. Satan will hide the hook that comes along with that. You know, um, You struggle with the disciplines of being with people. If that's who you are, you're an introvert, you're a quiet person. Satan will whisper to you the bait of ease and comfort that comes from not giving yourself to people as much. But he'll hide the hook. And the hook is the slow unwinding of your convictions. As you cease to meet as much with people and be nurtured and accountable and helped by people around you, He'll hide the hook of the slow impact and unwinding of your Christian life that will come. He'll show you the bait and hide. How do you deal with this? Well, you buckle around you the word of truth. You put on the armour. Romans 12 verse 9. Hate that which is evil. Cling to that which is good. Be aware of the nature of sin. That it will taste sweet. But that is no sign or evidence that it's good. Know these things from the scriptures. That that's the, of course that's the way sin is. Stolen fruit is always sweet. Um, be aware too and think deliberately on this, that sin will devastate. It is deceitful and enticing. You'll be hardened by sin's deceitfulness and it will lead you to grief and shame and vast loss. I'll give you the other way he whispers to us. He whispers to the insecure amongst us who have that insecure string. And he whispers this to you. Do you keep seeing how many times you've asked for forgiveness for that same sin? Do you see how many times you've had to ask forgiveness for it? How can you expect God to have you? You're too sinful. He whispers. You said last time you weren't going to do it again, and you have. You hypocrite. You call yourself a Christian. How can you minister to God's people with the sin that you've got? Now, for some of you, this is such a constant whisper that you've taken up the whisper yourself. And you've multiplied it and played it out again and again in your own heart and mind. You keep saying it to yourself. How do you combat that? The devil's schemes. You put on the armour of God, the belt of truth, the helmet of salvation, the shield of faith. 
If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us from all our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1. Isn't that a beautiful moment in church that you must do every week to be able to declare the forgiveness of God to weary sinners who come? Declare it to yourself. Whoever looks to the Son will be saved. Our God, Romans 4, isn't that most magnificent verse? Our God is the God who justifies the wicked. He justifies the ungodly while they're still ungodly. Buckle around you these truths and realize the truth that grief over sin and joy at forgiveness always go together. Do you know? Grief over failure and the joy of the glory of mercy always go together. And realize that the forgiven sinner is exactly what your church needs to minister to them. We don't need self-righteous, pious people. We need forgiven sinners who are standing in the grace of God. Our God is a God who justifies. We need one who knows the need of a saviour to declare to us the forgiveness that's found in that saviour. Know that the greater your sin, the more in need you are of a saviour. I find that a great comfort. I've just proven myself to be in need of a saviour. Well, there you go. That makes sense, doesn't it? Let me declare that to you as well. For some of you, this whisper is powerful. Resist the devil and he will flee. But for others, this isn't your string. The string that Satan whispers to for you is the one that says God is all mercy and only mercy. The whisper that you get is God's all merciful and only merciful. So it doesn't matter that you sin. Don't worry about it. Now, how do you deal with that? Will you buckle around yourself the the belt of truth, the Romans 11? You remind yourself of the goodness and the severity of God. The goodness and the severity of God. And remember too that the saints in history past, always took the grace of God to be an impetus to live righteously. It's kind of weird, but I find that hugely powerful in my life. Do you? That God's forgiven me again is never for me a sense of, oh, good. It's always, wow, I want to live better. I want to honour him more. The other whisper that might come will be the highlighting of the many times your prayers have not been answered. Is this your string? You pray and you pray. You pray about church. You pray about family. You pray about kids and nothing changes. Nothing happens. And Satan whispers to you, do you see he doesn't really love you? You have sinned too much. You're not worthy. Or the God that you proclaim and preach can't be real because you prayed and nothing happens. How do you deal with this one? You remind yourself that the Bible saints didn't always get what they prayed for. Just a simple truth. Paul didn't get what he prayed for when he prayed about the thorn in the flesh. The roll call of Hebrews 11, which I want to come back to in a moment. Many of them were sawn in two. (laughs) They lived in caves. They had nothing. Don't you think they prayed? Remind yourself that the saints didn't always get what they prayed for and teach yourself that it's often the case that what we want and pray for isn't always good for us. Let me rush through. Another whisper that Satan brings is to divide us and cause us to bite and devour. And let me talk about marriage. It... It is a great problem in our close relationships that we focus too much on the problems and we focus too much on the deficiencies. And Satan's work is to whisper to us about how they've failed you again, how they've let you down again, how you've done but she hasn't, he hasn't. How do you remedy this? It's very simple. Put on the armour of God Reflect more deliberately and actively on people's graces than on their deficiencies. 
deliberately choose to reflect on people's graces more than their deficiencies. Why do we focus on problems? Well, that in itself is a problem. Actively count the good things. Choose to overlook and let go and move past. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Remind yourself of the commands of God to love one another deeply from the heart and learn to care more about the other than you do about yourself. Your own hurts and disappointments, they loom large, but look to the best of the other, pray for grace and strength. Satan is a roaring lion roaming around to devour us and he devours us in ordinary ways. Do you see all of this? But let me finish by offering larger ones for us in our ministry. I think just two. Yep, just two. Let me offer a larger one. Satan whispers to us this, that you're missing out. You ought to have what others have. In church leadership, yes, I'm just tired. In church leadership, in church planting, you pour yourself out and people come and they go. They give a little bit, but they're busy. They've got a holiday to go on and you can't. And you continue to labour, unappreciated. And in all of that context, Satan whispers to you, the rest and ease and comfort, the trips, the house that they've all got, it's a, you should have as well. It's not fair. And so you go where? Well, I always go to Hebrews 11. I do love Hebrews 11. Come with me to Hebrews 11. Look at verse 24. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt. Why? Because he was looking ahead to his reward. He was looking ahead to his reward. By faith he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He persevered because he saw him who is invisible. He saw him who is invisible. That's what faith does, chapter 11, verse 1. Faith is the confidence in what we hope for, assurance of what we do not see. Faith actually makes real the invisible reality. That's what faith does. Verse 1, you know, is not a definition of faith. The definition of faith is trust, confidence. Verse 1 is a description of what faith does. It's a different thing. Faith does this thing, makes real the invisible. And when you see the reality of the invisible, you are able to say no to what others have become engrossed with and not become bitter. Speak to yourself daily that this world isn't our home. Speak to yourself daily that this world is not our home. We may lose it all here, but we have a reward. This life is short. It's just a few short years. What is missing out for this moment? What is that? When you've got eternity to rest. We just grasp the difference. What good is it to gain the whole world and forfeit your soul? Let me give you the last one. And I think, I hope it's fitting as we close. Here's another way Satan whispers to us. He whispers to us that we've done enough. We've done enough. You've got a church going, you've got people there, you've got enough problems dealing with the people you've got. Think bigger, think more, you've done enough. How do you deal with this? You let the word of God give you an invisible perspective that you can't see with your eyes, that there is more that God is pursuing. Ephesians chapter 1, his purpose is to sum up everything in Christ. It's to win both those who are near and far, the Jew and all the nations. That's God's purpose. That's his desire. And his desire is to do that because the invisible reality is that people around you are dead 
and going to hell. Do you know, I, um, uh, a couple of times ago in South Africa, I was, um, I was with a pastor and we were driving through one of the townships that was just near his house. Uh, hundreds of thousands of people in poverty and destitution. And I, first time I've been through this township and I said to him, I said, how do you guys deal with this? How do you drive past this every day and not want to do something constantly? And he said, you get disaster fatigue. So that after driving past it so often, you stop seeing it. And, uh, and I said, you know, I'm the visiting pastor, so I'm meant to be helping them, not being helped by them. So I say, you know, you've got a bigger problem. And he goes, what's that? And I said, your congregations are driving past middle-class houses every day and failing to see the bigger problem that's there. And he said, yes, exactly. I said, they're failing to see the invisible reality of souls that are dead in sin, facing eternity in hell. It's easy to feel moved when you see a starving person living in a house that's decrepit and falling apart and feel great compassion. Our problem is we don't have the eyes of faith to see what the soul of every human around us is like. And you need the eyes of the scriptures to see that, to see that people are shriveled up and dead, facing a Christless future without hope, without God. And until you actually get past the whisper of Satan that says, just look on the visible, just look at the visible, until you get past that and realise with the eyes of faith where our world's great need is, you'll be tempted to say enough's enough. Thinking small's okay. Just gathering as few people around and having a lovely... That's enough. Not when you have the eyes of faith. You must learn to think bigger. To be driven with a passion. To see near and far wonder Christ. Through the great and powerful work of the armour, the sword, the word, the feet shod with the gospel of peace, that we might take this wonderful gospel to the world. How about I pray? Heavenly Father, we, uh, we pray, please, that you would continue to give us the eyes of faith, that you would help us see the invisible realities, that by faith they would become so visible to us that they'd be tangible and solid and substantial, such that we'd be shaped by them more than we are by the visible. Help us, please, to see the way you see things. Help us to appreciate, too, that though the world parades its heroes and swoons over its celebrities and sports stars and the wealthy and the powerful, you swoon over a saviour and you long and wait to welcome your faithful servants to bring us into our rest. Please help us to see you, our Father, who has an inheritance stored up for us, that we might be shaped and controlled by those truths and not grow weary in doing good and continue to have a vision to see more and more people who are dead in sin under the captivity of Satan, one out from under that terrible, terrible tragedy and brought into the glorious kingdom of the Son that you love. Help us to be faithful, determined preachers of the gospel aware of the spiritual power that that is and help us to persevere in this throughout whatever days you give us. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.